Preface Moving from being nice to being genuine. Expressing one's truth while respecting others and respecting oneself, that is the journey on which attorney and author Thomas Donsenborg invites us to accompany him. This is the invitation he extends to us in this book by suggesting that we plunge straight into the heart of how we enter into dialogue with ourselves and others. In it, we learn how to reprogram the way we express ourselves. Once that has been done, there comes the joy of being closer to others and closer to ourselves. There is the joy of being open to others. And at the heart of this process lies the possibility of giving up the familiar, even comfortable, confusions with which we so often content ourselves, instead of gaining access to a universe of choice and freedom. What finer prospect, what finer program? This isn't about skimming the surface, like dragonflies flitting above a summer pond. Rather, the method of communication put forward by Thomas Donsenborg calls into question our psychological makeup, inducing us to delve more deeply into ourselves and our relationships. It is a demanding venture because in order to succeed in clearly formulating what is alive in ourselves, we often need to search out unconscious conditionings. It is a revolutionary venture because along the road we discover that our plan to express our true self plainly puts our vulnerability on the line, puts our pride to the test. It is a daunting venture because it highlights our propensity to leave things as they are for fear of upsetting others, and for fear that others might upset us in turn if we truly speak out. Finally, it is a venture as challenging as it is stimulating, for it invites each of us to work on changing ourselves rather than expecting anyone and everyone else to change. I personally became aware of the potential of nonviolent communication when I was traveling in the Sahara Desert. With the assistance of Jean-Marie Delacroix, I was guiding a group of 24 men who were taking part in a program called the Inner Flame. At Thomas Donsenborg's suggestion, I had accepted responsibility for some young people from the Cops and Hoods organization, as well as some of its adult facilitators to provide us with technical assistance during this adventure. Some years earlier, I had learned that this organization was involved with street children. Pierre Bernard Velge, the founder, and his right-hand man, Thomas Donsenborg, had invited me to join them as psychological counselor for a desert expedition in which the troubled youngsters were taking part. I had subsequently persuaded the 24 men to join us in our program, and I'd gotten really caught up in this venture, which was designed to help the men with their social reintegration. I had indeed gotten caught up in the program, but I began to regret it when one young member of the program threatened an adult with a knife. We were hours away by motor vehicle from any sign of civilization, and danger was now staring us in the face. In absolutely no way did I want to jeopardize the people I was responsible for and could think of only one solution, pack the whole group and head home as soon as possible. In fact, that was an easy way of getting rid of the problem for myself. I told Thomas about my intentions. Without rejecting my proposal, he asked me for a few hours more time. Long discussions took place on the sand dune, at a slight distance from the campground. To my great surprise, the conversations led to unity among the entire group. Moreover, no further problems occurred to mar our trip. While admiring Thomas's patience, I was telling myself that the nonviolent communication technique he was using would be worthwhile studying. Subsequently, Thomas became an assistant and a regular co-facilitator at my workshops. Within the Kerr.com association, I still often call him in to settle tricky situations. I attended his introductory nonviolent communication workshop, and the basic principles of this discipline became those of my own seminars. Why? 
because I realize that most of us, first and foremost myself, are still in our infancy when we endeavor to communicate. We are inclined to assess others, to judge them and to label them without disclosing to them our own feelings and without daring to express our true self. Who among us can boast of having taken stock of the feelings that underlie our judgments before we enunciate them? Who takes the trouble to identify and name the needs that have been forced back and camouflaged behind the words we speak? Who tries to make realistic, negotiable requests in their relationships with others? In my view this way of communicating, based on realistic and negotiable requests, is all the more interesting as it complements what has already been proposed by other methods, among others those of Jacques Salome and Thomas Gordon. They all rightly stress the need to learn to express ourselves using our messages, based on our own life experience and to admit that our needs, in and of themselves, are legitimate. However, such legitimacy has its limitations. It needs to find expression in the formulation of negotiable requests made to others, unless we want to enclose ourselves in a bubble of egocentricity, for although our needs are justified, they cannot all be met. Compromises acceptable to all parties must be sought. In my view it is here that nonviolent communication shows its true colors. Such a technique would make miracles in politics. Moreover, it should be taught to schoolchildren as soon as they go to primary school in order to help them steer clear of the bad habit of losing touch with themselves and with their own modes of expression. As for couples, where friction between human beings is sometimes painfully and dangerously intensified, NVC truly comes into its own to prove its efficacy. Nonviolent communication to me appears to be the antechamber to psychology and also what makes it possible in the psychological understanding of our human challenges to find day-to-day -day applications of a very practical nature. In truth, although the principles of any communication method are in general easy to grasp, it's always practice that remains the difficulty. Bearing this in mind, the book you hold in your hands is a genuine reference manual. It shows the talent and openness of the mind of the author, who provides the world with an approach to feelings and needs in which one can see two aspects of his long practice at the bar, rigor of analysis and a down-to-earth concern for effectiveness. Among the relatively few people who have been bold enough to speak their true selves, Thomas Donsenborg is for me the one who succeeds with the greatest agility. This poet of communication, this explorer of inner and outer deserts, has understood that in order for there to be true communication between human beings, it is necessary to give up power relationships and take the risk of expressing one's own truth. I saw him transform himself and, in a few years, move from being a nice little boy, afraid of committing himself, to becoming an amorous husband and a devoted father. I witnessed him gradually withdrawing from his lawyers and banking consultants' world in order to be faithful to himself, and to help others become so as well. I am happy to see him at his best in this book, written to teach us that in the final analysis there is no intimacy with others unless there is intimacy with oneself, and no intimacy with oneself unless there is intimacy with others. With the gentleness and elegance of Saint-Exupéry's The Little Prince, Thomas Donsenborg reminds us that we can join others without ceasing to be ourselves. Guy Corneau Introduction I have no hope of getting out of my solitude by myself. Stones have no hope of being anything but stones. However, through collaboration they get themselves together and become a temple. Antoine de Saint-Exupéry French writer I was a lawyer, nicely and oh, so politely depressed and demotivated. Today, it is with enthusiasm that I lead conferences, seminars, and private consultations. 
I was a bachelor terrified at the idea of emotional commitment, and overwork gave me solace and solitude. Today, I'm a husband and a father and I'm overjoyed to be so. I was living with a well-concealed but constant inner sadness. Today, I am filled with confidence and joy. What happened? I became aware that by ignoring my own needs for such a long time I was inflicting violence upon myself, and I tended to deflect this violence toward others. Then, after experiencing the insights and power of nonviolent communication, I accepted that I had needs, that I could listen to them, differentiate between them, establish priorities among them, and take care of myself rather than complaining about no one taking care of me. All the energy I had previously devoted to complaining, rebelling, and being nostalgic, I little by little gathered together, re-centered, and placed in the service of inner transformation, creation, and relationship. I also became aware of and accepted the fact that others also have their needs and that I am not necessarily the only person with the skills and availability to meet such needs. The process of nonviolent communication was and continues to be for me an inspiring and reassuring guide in the transformation I sought to undergo. I hope it will inspire and reassure readers in understanding their own relationships, beginning with a relationship with themselves. Through this book, I wish to illustrate the process that Marshall Rosenberg I developed in the spirit and the line of thought of the works of Carl Rogers. Those acquainted with the work of Thomas Gordon also will find notions they are familiar with. I hope in this way to show my trust that if each of us accepts our own violence, the violence we often exert unconsciously and very subtly on ourselves and others, often with the best of intentions, and takes care to understand how the violence is triggered, each will be able to work toward diffusing it. We will then be able to create more satisfying relationships, relationships that are both freer and more responsible. Marshall Rosenberg calls his process nonviolent communication, NVC. I myself refer to it as conscious and nonviolent communication. Violence in fact is a consequence of our lack of consciousness. Were we more aware inside of what we are truly experiencing, we would find it easier to find opportunities to express our strength without committing aggression against one another. I believe that there is violence as soon as we use our strength not to create, stimulate, or protect but to constrain, whether the constraint is in regard to ourselves or to others. Our strength may be emotional, psychological, moral, hierarchical, or institutional. Thus subtle violence, the kid glove violence, especially emotional violence, is infinitely more widespread than the violence that expresses itself through blows, crimes, and insults, and it is all the more insidious for not being named. If the violence is not named, it is because it is hidden within the words themselves we use, innocently and sometimes not so innocently, each day. Our vocabulary is violence's day-to-day -day vector. Indeed, we translate our thoughts and therefore our consciousness mainly through the intermediary of words. We therefore have the choice of communicating our thinking and our awareness through words that divide, oppose, separate, compare, categorize, or condemn, or through words that gather, propose, reconcile, and stimulate. Thus by working on our consciousness and our language, we can suppress the interference that hampers communication and generates ordinary violence. There is, therefore, nothing new about the underlying principles of nonviolent communication. For centuries, they have been part and parcel of the wisdom of the world, a wisdom so little implemented because it doubtless seems impractical in most cases. What I think is new, and what I have been able to verify each day in its genuine practicality, is the way the process proposed by Marshall Rosenberg is articulated.
On the one hand, there are the concepts of communication and nonviolence. These two notions and the values they convey, however attractive they may be, often leave us feeling helpless. Is it always possible to communicate without violence? In our dealings with others, how can we make both real and concrete the values to which everyone adheres in thought, respect, freedom, mutual compassion, responsibility? On the other hand, there are the components and challenges of communication. Through a four-point process, we are invited to become aware that we always react to something, to a situation, point one, observation, that this observation always produces a feeling in us, point two, feeling, that this feeling corresponds to a need, point three, need, that this need invites us to make a request, point four, request. This method is based on the fact that we feel better when we clearly see what we are reacting to, when we understand properly both our feelings and our needs, and when we manage to formulate negotiable requests while at the same time feeling safe and being able to receive others' reactions, whatever they may be. This method also is based on the observed fact that we feel better when we clearly see what others are referring to or are reacting to, when we understand their feelings and needs and hear a negotiable request that allows us the freedom to be in agreement or not, and to seek together a solution meeting the needs of both parties, not one to the detriment of the other. Thus, beyond being a method of communicating, nonviolent communication leads to an art of living in relationships, as well as respecting oneself, others, and the world at large. In this computer era, more and more people communicate faster and faster but less and less well. More and more people are suffering from loneliness, a lack of understanding, meaninglessness, and a loss of reference points. Organizational and operational preoccupations take precedence over the quality of our relationships. It is a matter of urgency to explore other ways of relating. Many of us feel tired regarding our inability to express ourselves genuinely and be truly listened to and understood. Even though, using modern technology, we exchange a great deal of information, we are still handicapped when it comes to true expression and listening. Out of the resulting powerlessness are born fears that trigger old fallback reflexes, fundamentalisms, nationalisms, racisms. In the excitement of technological conquest, particularly worldwide means of communication in the totally new context of the interweaving of cultures, races, religions, fashions, political and economic paradigms that these means allow for, are we not running the risk of missing out on what is intimate and true? This intimacy and truth are so invaluable that any other quest might well prove fruitless, even pointless, the end purpose here is encounters, true encounters between human beings, with no games, no masks, no interference from our fears, habits, and cliches that don't carry the weight of our conditionings and old reflexes, and that subsequently bring us out of the isolation of our telephones, our screens, and our virtual images. It would appear that here lies a new continent to be conquered, little explored to this day, that strikes fear into many, a true relationship between two individuals who are free and responsible. If this exploration strikes fear into our hearts, it is because many of us tend to be afraid of losing ourselves in a relationship. We have learned to alienate ourselves from our true self in order to be with another. What I am proposing is to explore a hypothesis for genuine relations between human beings who are free and responsible at the same time, a hypothesis that I will characterize by a twofold question that, it seems to me, is so often at the center of the existential difficulties many experience, how can one be oneself without stopping being with another, and how can one be with another without stopping being oneself? While writing this book, I regularly had a concern in the back of my mind. 
I know that books can inform and can contribute to our evolving. However, I also know that intellectual understanding can never in and of itself transform hearts. The transformation of the heart is born out of emotional understanding, that is, experience and practice over the duration. This book itself is an example of that, it is largely based on experience and practice. Since my first contact with nonviolent communication, I have striven to consolidate knowledge through practice, exercising wariness toward theoretical knowledge that often leads us to believe that we have understood it all, which perhaps is true intellectually, whereas we have taken nothing at all on board. Such an illusion enables us to skirt any opportunity to transform ourselves in any true or durable manner. This is why I have no reference works to propose, except for Marshall Rosenberg's book Nonviolent Communication, A Language of Life, although I realize and am thankful that the notions I am tackling here also have been explored by other authors. In addition, I quote the wisdom of dozens of sages and great thinkers. I am taking a risk by committing to the pages of this book words and notions that are necessarily static regarding what is actually learned through experience in workshops or seminars, role plays, integration time, listening to emotions, feedback, silences, and the resonance of a group. The risk is that the process may appear simplistically utopian. I accept this risk because it is a process and not a trick, it is a state of consciousness to be practiced as one practices a foreign language. And everyone knows that a read-through of simple French from A to Z will not win a person a speech-making competition in Paris. Nor will that person dare to step into the arena of a conversation in French at a party. First of all, one modestly plays one's scales. So in the end, does not the word utopia offer us a taste of another place to strive toward? This book seeks to speak precisely to those who are heading for another place, a place of true encounters between human beings. My work allows me to meet such people, top executives in business, couples and families from every walk of life, individuals on welfare, persons in education or in hospitals, young people in distress, every day in the most diverse of environments. And each day I can bear witness that this place does exist, if only we want it to. Chapter 1 Why We Are Alienated From Ourselves Our intellectual world is made up of categories, it is bordered by arbitrary and artificial frontiers. We need to build bridges, but for that there is a need for knowledge, a greater vision of man and his destiny. Yehudi Menuhin U.S. and British Violinist and Conductor Preamble I have no words to describe my loneliness, my sadness, or my anger. I have no words to speak my need for exchange, understanding, recognition. So I criticize, I insult, or I strike. Or I have my fix, abuse alcohol, or get depressed. Violence, expressed within or without, results from a lack of vocabulary, it is the expression of a frustration that has no words to express it. And there are good reasons for that, most of us have not acquired a vocabulary for our inner life. We never learned to describe accurately what we were feeling and what needs we had. Since childhood, however, we have learned a host of words, we can talk about history, geography, mathematics, science, or literature, we can describe computer technology or sporting technique and hold forth on the economy or the law. But the words for life within, when did we learn them? As we grew up, we became alienated from our feelings and needs in an attempt to listen to those of our mother and father, brothers and sisters, school teachers, et al., do as mommy tells you, do whatever your cousin who's coming to play with you this afternoon wants 
do what is expected of you. And it was thus that we started to listen to the feelings and needs of everyone, boss, customer, neighbor, colleagues, except ourselves. To survive and fit in, we thought we had to be cut off from ourselves. Then one day the payment comes due for such alienation. Shyness, depression, misgivings, hesitations in reaching decisions, inability to choose, difficulties to commit, a loss of taste for life. Help! We circle round and round like the water draining from a sink. We are about to go under. We are waiting for someone to drag us out, to be given instructions, and yet, at the same time, recommendations aren't exactly welcome. We're snowed under with you must do this, it's high time you did that, you should. What we need most of all is to get in touch with ourselves, to seek a solid grounding in ourselves, to feel within that it is we who are speaking, we who decide and not our habits, our conditioning, our fears of another's opinion. But how? I like to introduce the process that I advocate by using the picture of a little man born of the imagination of Alain Domergue, a trainer in nonviolent communication in Geneva, Switzerland. Intellect or observation Feelings Needs or values The request or concrete and negotiable action 1. Intellect or observation Intellect Judgments, labels, categories Prejudices, a prioris, rote beliefs, automatic reflexes Binary system or duality Language of diminished responsibility The head symbolizes mind The main beneficiary of our educating is the mind It's the mind that we have honed, toned, and disciplined in order to be effective, productive, and fast Yet our heart, our emotional life, our inner life, has not enjoyed such attention Indeed, we learn to be good and reasonable, to make well-thought-out decisions to analyze, categorize, and label all things and place them in separate drawers. We have become masters of logic and reasoning and, since childhood, what has been stimulated, exercised, refined, and nuanced is our intellectual understanding of things. As for our emotional understanding, it has been encouraged little or not at all, if not overtly reproved. Now, in the course of my work, I observe four characteristics of the functioning of the mind that are often the cause of the violence we do to ourselves and others. Judgments, labels, and categories. We judge. We judge others or situations as a function of the little we have seen of them, and we take the little we have seen for the whole. For example, we see a boy in the street whose hair is orange and combed into a crest, he has his face pierced in various places. Oh, a punk, another rebel a dropout feeding off society. In a flash, we have judged, faster than the sun creates our shadow. We know nothing about this person, who is perhaps passionately engaged in a youth movement, a drama troupe, or computer research and who is thus contributing his talent and his heart to the evolution of the world. However, as something about his looks, his difference, generates fear, mistrust, and needs in us that we're unable to decipher, perhaps the need to welcome difference, the need for belonging, the need to be reassured that difference does not bring about separation, we judge him. Look how our judging does violence to beauty, generosity, the wealth that may well lie within this person whom we have not seen. Another example. We see an elegant woman dressed in a fur coat, driving a large car. What a snob! 
just another woman who can't think of anything better to do than display her riches. Again, we judge, taking the little we have seen of another for her reality. We lock her into a little drawer, wrap her up in cellophane. Once again, we do violence to the whole beauty of this person, which we have not perceived because it lies within. This person is perhaps quite generous with her time and money, and she may be engaged in social work, giving support to destitute people, or pursuing other unknown endeavors. We know nothing about her. Once again, her looks awaken fear, mistrust, anger, or sadness in us and put us in touch with needs that we don't know how to decode, need for exchange, need for sharing, need for human beings to contribute actively to the common good, as we judge, so we imprison others within a category, we close them away in drawers. We take the tip of the iceberg for the whole, whereas another part of us realizes that 90% of the iceberg is under the surface of the sea, out of sight. It is worth recalling the words of Saint-Exupéry, author of The Little Prince, we only see well with our hearts, what is truly important is invisible to our eyes. Do we really look at others with our hearts? Prejudices, a prioris, rote beliefs, automatic reflexes. We have learned to function out of habit, to automate thinking, to presumptively have prejudices and a prioris, to live in a universe of concepts and ideas, and to fabricate or propagate unverified beliefs. Men are macho. Women can't drive. Officials are lazy. Politicians are corrupt. You have to fight in life. There are things that have to be done, whether one wants to or not. That's the way it always has been done. A good mother, a good husband, a good son, must. My wife would never put up with me speaking to her like that. In this family, one can certainly not raise an issue like that. My father is someone who. These are expressions that basically reflect our fears. Using them, we enclose ourselves and others in beliefs, habits, concepts. Once again, we do violence to the men who are anything but macho, who are open to their sensitivities, their kindness, the nurturing feminine that lies within them. We do violence to the women who drive much better than most men, having both more respect for other motorists and greater safety in traffic. We do violence to the officials who give of themselves generously and enthusiastically through their work. We do violence to the politicians who do their jobs with loyalty and integrity, working idealistically and selflessly for the common good. We do violence to ourselves and others regarding all the things that we dare not speak or do, whereas they are truly important for us, as well as for the things we believe we have to do without taking the time to check whether they indeed are a high priority or whether we might better take care of the true needs of the people concerned, those of others or our own, in some different way. Binary system or duality. When all is said and done, most of us have gotten into the all-too-comfortable habit of expressing things in terms of black and white, positive and negative. A door has to be open or closed, something is good or bad, one is right or wrong. This is done or that is not done. It is fashionable, or it is obsolete. It is just great or absolute rubbish. There are subtle variations on the theme, you are intellectual or manual, a mathematician or an artist, a responsible father or a free spirit a social butterfly or a couch potato, a poet or an engineer, a homo or a hetero, with it or a fuddy-duddy. This is the trap of duality, the binary system. Most of us have gotten into the all-too-comfortable habit of expressing things in terms of black and white,
positive and negative. It's as if we could not possibly be both a brilliant intellectual and an effective manual worker, a rigorous mathematician and an imaginative artist, a being both responsible and fanciful, a sensitive poet and an earnest engineer. It's as if we could not possibly love ourselves beyond our male-slash-female sexual duality, be conventional in some areas and highly innovative in others. Stated another way, it's as if reality were not infinitely more rich and colored than our poor little categories, these tiny drawers into which we try to stuff reality because its mobility, diversity, and enchanting vitality disconcert and frighten us. In order to gain reassurance, we seem to prefer to lock everything away in apothecary's pots, carefully labeled and placed on the shelves of our intellect. The logic of exclusion and division is something we practice on the basis of or. We play it who is right, who is wrong. A tragic game that stigmatizes everything that divides us rather than extolling the value of what unites us. Later we will see to what extent we allow ourselves to be trapped by the binary system and what violence it perpetrates on ourselves and others. The most frequent example is the following, either we take care of others, or we take care of ourselves, with the consequence that either we are alienated from ourselves, or we are alienated from others, as if we couldn't possibly take care of others and take care of ourselves while being close to others without ceasing to be close to ourselves. Language of Diminished Responsibility We use a language that allows us not to feel responsible for what we're experiencing or for what we are doing. First of all, we have learned to project onto others or onto an outside agency most of the responsibility for our feelings. I am angry because you, I am sad because my parents, I am depressed because the world, the pollution, the ozone layer, we take little or no responsibility for what we are feeling. On the contrary, we find a scapegoat, we make heads roll, we offload our negative energy onto someone else who serves as a lightning rod for our frustrations. Then we also have learned not to take responsibility for our acts. For example, it's the rule, orders from above, tradition has it that, I wasn't able to do otherwise, you must, I have no choice, it's time, it is, not, normal that. We will see to what extent this language alienates us from ourselves and from others and enslaves us all the more subtly as it appears to be a language of diminished responsibility. 2. Feelings Through this traditional way of functioning, which sets mental processes at a premium, we are cut off from our feelings and emotions by something as effectively as by a concrete slab. Perhaps to some degree you will recognize yourself in what appears below. Personally, I learned to be a good and reasonable little boy, ever listening to others. Speaking of oneself or one's emotions in regard to self was not well received when I was a child. One could describe with emotions a painting or a garden, speak of a piece of music, a book, or a landscape, but speaking of oneself, especially with any emotion, was tantamount to being tainted with egocentricity, narcissism, navel-gazing. It isn't right to be busy with oneself, it is others whom we should attend to, I was told. If one day I was very angry and expressed it, I might hear something like, it isn't nice to be angry, a good little boy doesn't get angry, go to your bedroom and come back when you have thought things over. Back to reason. I thought things over with my head, which wasted no time in judging me guilty. So I then cut myself off from my heart and put my anger in my pocket and went downstairs to redeem my place in the family community by displaying a contrived smile. If another day I was sad and unable to hold back my tears, suddenly shaken by one of those heavy moods that can fall upon you without understanding why, and I just needed reassuring and comforting, I would hear, it's not nice to be sad.
just think of everything that is done for you. And then there are people who are really unfortunate and who don't have nearly as much as you do. Go to your room. You can come back when you have thought things over. Dismissed again. I would go to my room, and the same rational process would predominate, it's true, I have no right to be sad. I have a father, a mother, brothers and sisters, books for school and toys, a house, and food. What am I complaining about? What is all this, this sadness? I'm so selfish. Useless idiot. Once again, I judged myself and found myself guilty, alienating myself from my heart. Sadness went off to join anger in my pocket, and I went to redeem my place in the family, displaying another contrived smile. So you can see how early we learn to be nice rather than genuine. Finally, another day when I was brimming over with joy, exploding with happiness and expressing it by running around, playing my stereo full blast, and singing and talking non-stop, I would hear the following words, what's wrong with you? Life is no spring picnic. My goodness, that was the death knell. Even joy wasn't welcome among adults. So what did I do then as a 10-year-old lad? I entered the following two messages on my internal hard drive. To be an adult is to cut oneself off as much as possible from one's emotions and use them only once in a while to produce the right effect in a party conversation. To be loved and have my place in the world, I must not do what I feel like doing, but what others want me to do. To be truly myself runs the risk of losing the love of others. This data entry operation generates several factors of conditioning that we will explore further in Chapter 5. Yes but, I hear you say, is it really necessary to give a warm reception to all these emotions? Might we not run the risk of being manipulated by our emotions? You are doubtless thinking of some people who have been angry for 50 years and who have been wallowing in their anger without taking a single step forward, or others who are sad or homesick and dwell incessantly and morosely on their perceived problems, with little hope of escape. Still others rebel against everything and drag around their rebellion like a ball and chain, without ever finding peace. Indeed, Swimming perpetually in one's feelings brings no development and may even induce nausea. Our emotions are like waves of multiple feelings, pleasant or unpleasant, that are useful to identify and distinguish. It is useful to identify our feelings because they inform us about ourselves and invite us to identify our needs. Feelings operate like a flashing light on a dashboard, indicating that something is or is not operating properly, that a need is or is not being met. As we are so often cut off from our feelings, we tend to have few words to describe them. On the one hand, we may feel good, happy, relieved, relaxed, on the other, we may feel fearful, rotten, disappointed, sad, angry. We have such a paucity of words to describe ourselves, and nonetheless we still function. In non-violent communication training sessions, a list of more than 250 feelings is handed out to participants to enable them to expand their word power and, in so doing, broaden the consciousness of what they are feeling. This list doesn't draw its words from an encyclopedia or thesaurus. Rather, it is a glossary of common words that we read daily in newspapers or hear on television. However, a sense of propriety and reserve handed down from generation to generation in most families prevents us from using them when speaking about ourselves. Developing our vocabulary expands our ability to deal with what we are experiencing. Much of what we learn from infancy onward plays a part in developing our awareness of subject matters or fields of interest that lie outside ourselves. As noted in the preamble, 
we become quite proficient at learning history, geography, and mathematics, and later we can specialize in plumbing, electricity, data processing, or medicine. We develop a vocabulary in all sorts of areas, and we thus acquire a certain mastery, a certain ease with which to deal with these matters. Acquiring vocabulary goes hand in hand with developing awareness, it is because we have learned to name elements and differentiate among them that we can understand how they interact, and modify such interaction as necessary. Personally, I don't understand much about plumbing, and when my water heater doesn't switch on, I call a plumber and tell him what the problem is. My level of awareness of the elements at play and my ability to act on them are pretty close to zero. As for the plumber, he will identify what is going on and express that in practical terms, the burner is dead or the pipes are scaled up, and the gas injector has had it. This gives the plumber power to act and, in this case, power to repair. When I was still a practicing lawyer and received people in my office who were muddled, confused, and powerless when faced with legal difficulties, I experienced pleasure in sorting out the matters at stake, seeing how they interacted, defining priorities, and thus being in a position of strength to propose a way forward. Power of action is therefore tied to awareness and the ability to name elements and differentiate among them. Each of us has thus learned to exercise a degree of power of action in areas outside ourselves. However, when in our education did we learn to name what was at stake in our inner life? When did we learn to become aware of what was going on within us, to distinguish and sort through our feelings, as well as our basic needs, to name those needs and then simply and flexibly make concrete and negotiable requests, taking into account the needs of others? How often do we feel helpless, even rebellious, at the powerlessness we experience relating to our anger, sadness, or nostalgia, feelings overflowing within us, poisoning us like some venom, without being able to react? To our feelings of being ill at ease and angry, sad or nostalgic, are now added discomfort and helplessness, not only am I unhappy or angry, I also don't know what to do to get out of it. Often to get out of it we can only blame someone or something, daddy, mommy, the school, buddies, colleagues, clients, job, estate, pollution, the slump. Having neither understanding of nor control over our inner lives, we find a party outside ourselves to serve as a scapegoat for our pain. I am angry because you, I am sad because you, I am disgusted because the world. We export our difficulty, we offload it onto someone or something else as we are unable to process it ourselves. On the other hand, to be able to process what is happening within us, we need to develop a vocabulary of feelings and needs in order to become more at ease with the method. Little by little we gain mastery, which is not suffocation of our true needs and feelings. Instead, it is appropriate management of them. Feelings act like a blinking light on a dashboard or control panel. They inform us about a need, a pleasant feeling shows that a need is being met, an unpleasant feeling indicates an unmet need. It is therefore invaluable to be aware of this key distinction in order to identify what one needs. 4. Rather than complaining about what I do not want and often asking someone incompetent to help, I will be able to clarify what I want, my need rather than my lack, and to inform a competent person in order to get help, this person most often being yours truly. Feelings act like a blinking light on a dashboard, they tell us that an inner need is or is not being met. Here is an example I give at conferences, I am driving my car along a country road, and I may find myself in one of the following three situations. I am driving an old car with no control panel, like a Model T Ford of the early 1900s. 
I'm driving along confidently, using up all the reserve gasoline and have no concern for my need for gas, since there is nothing to alert my awareness. Sooner or later I run out of gas in the middle of the countryside, no signal, no awareness of the need, no power to act. A more conventional scenario, I'm driving a modern-day car that has a fully equipped dashboard. At some stage, my gas gauge shows me that I'm on reserve. So I complain, who forgot to put gas in this car? It's simply unbelievable, it always happens to me. Isn't there anyone besides me in this family who can think about filling up? I complain and complain, so much so that I'm totally absorbed by my complaining and fail to see all the gas stations I drive past. Sooner or later I run out of gas in the middle of the countryside. There had been a signal, I became aware of the need, but I undertook no actions to remedy the situation. I devoted all my energy to complaining and seeking a guilty party and someone on whom to vent my frustration. A scenario advocated by nonviolent communication, I'm still driving a modern-day car that has a fully functioning dashboard-slash-control panel. The gas gauge shows that I'm on reserve. I identify my need, aha, I'm going to need fuel, but I don't see a gas station right now. What am I to do? I then take concrete and positive action. I will be alert to the next gas station I come across. I'll go there and take care of my need. I provide the rescue service myself. Being aware of the need I have voiced, I awaken myself to the possibility of coming up with a solution. The solution does not occur immediately, but as I have become aware of the need, there is a much greater chance I will come up with a solution than if, as in the first scenario, I have no awareness. If I sorted things out myself by filling up, this doesn't mean I'm going to forego my need for consideration or respect. Back home, I may say to my teenage child or spouse, I'm disappointed at having had to fill up after you use the car, feeling, F, I have a need for consideration of my time and respect for having loaned you my car, need, N, in the future, would you agree to filling up the tank yourselves, request, R? Indeed, we are often alienated from our feelings through our education or habit. This is even more so when it comes to our needs. 3. Needs, or Values Most of us nowadays are to a large extent cut off from our feelings, and we are almost completely alienated from our needs. I sometimes like to say that a concrete slab separates us from our needs. We have been taught to try to understand and meet the needs of others rather than listen to our own. Listening to oneself has long been synonymous with sin, or at least egocentricity or navel-gazing, it is not right to listen to oneself like that. Oh, another person who listens to himself. The very idea that we might have needs is still very often perceived as problematic. Now it's true that the word need has often been misunderstood. It does not mean a passing desire, a momentary impulse, a whim. We are referring here to our basic needs, the ones that are required simply to maintain life we meet for the sake of balance. Relate to our most basic human values, identity, respect, understanding, responsibility, liberty, mutual aid. The more I practice NVC principles, the more I'm aware of the extent to which better understanding our needs enables us to better understand our values. I will expand on this issue a bit later. In a workshop I was running, a mother was complaining how she failed to understand her children. A state of war reigned in the household, and she said she was exhausted at having to require them to do a thousand things that either they appeared not to understand or that made them feel like doing exactly the opposite. 
When I asked her if she could identify her needs relating to this situation, she exploded and said, But it is not here on earth that we are meant to look after our needs. If everyone were to listen to their needs, war would break out all over. What you are offering is dreadful selfishness. Are you angry, F, because you would like human beings to be attentive and listen to one another, N, in order together to come up with solutions to meet their needs? Yes. Is your wish, N, that there should be understanding and harmony among human beings? But of course. Well, you see, it's difficult for me to believe that you will ever be able to listen properly to the needs of your children if you don't begin by listening sufficiently to your own. It's hard for me to believe that you will be able to understand them in all their diversity and contradictions if you don't take the time to understand yourself and love yourself with all your multiple facets and your own contradictions. How do you feel when I say that to you? She was speechless, on the brink of tears. Then it was as if something clicked in her heart. The group stayed with her in silence, a moment of profound empathy. Then laughing, she observed, it's incredible. I'm just realizing that I never learned to listen to myself. So I don't listen to them either. I just demand that they obey my rules. And of course they rebel. At their age, I rebelled too. Can we genuinely give proper listening attention to others without genuinely giving ourselves proper listening? Can we be available and compassionate toward others without being so toward ourselves? Can we love others with all their differences and their contradictions without first of all loving our own differences and contradictions? If we cut ourselves off from our needs, there will be a price to pay, by ourselves and others. If we cut ourselves off from our needs, there will be a price to pay, by ourselves and others. Alienation from our needs generates invoices in various ways. Here are the most frequent ways. It is difficult for us to make choices that involve us personally. At work we usually manage to. But in our emotional, intimate lives, when it comes to more personal choices, how difficult it is. We hesitate, not knowing how to choose, hoping that eventually events or people will decide for us. Or we force the choice upon ourselves, that's more reasonable, that's wiser, helpless as we are to listen and understand our deeper yearnings. We have an addiction, the way others see us. Unable to identify our true needs, those that are personally our own, we become dependent on the opinions of others, what do you think about that? What would you do if you were in my place? Or, worse, we fit perfectly into the mold of their expectations, such as we imagine them to be, without checking them and simply adapting or over-adapting to them, whatever will they think of me? I absolutely must do this or that, I must behave in such and such a way, otherwise, we wear ourselves out being dependent on others' recognition and, at worst, we become fat addicts, everyone does it like that, I'm going to behave like everyone else. We become the playthings of various addictions, money, power, sex, television, gambling, alcohol, prescription drugs and other drugs, and now the internet, or formal instructions, submitting to the authority of a demanding company, a directive political movement, or an authoritarian cult or sect. I have met many people suffering unconsciously or consciously from addictions recognized as such. In my view, the most widespread and the least recognized is the addiction to how we appear to others. We are not aware of our needs, and for good reason, since we weren't taught to recognize them. We therefore expect our needs to be met through drugs, alcohol, people. We become dispossessed of, and disconnected from, 
our deepest and truest selves. We have been taught to meet the needs of others, to be a good boy, or good girl, polite, kind, and courteous, the good fellows, as Guy Corneau calls them, listening to everyone except oneself. Too so, if one day, despite all that, we confusedly observe that our needs are not being met, then there is necessarily a guilty party, someone who is not bothered about us. We then get into the process of violence by aggression or projection referred to earlier, that is, a process where criticism, judgment, insults, and rebukes loom large. I'm unhappy because my parents, I'm sad because my spouse, I'm feeling down because my boss, I'm depressed because of the economic situation or all the pollution, I'm in a bad mood because, name sports team, keeps losing. More often than not, we have experienced being subservient to the needs of others, or we have feared not being able to have our needs met, to such an extent that we bossily impose our needs on others, and no questions asked. That's how it is. Now, go and clean your room, and at once, do it because I said so, that's why. We then get into a process of violence through authority. We are exhausted at trying to get our needs met and forever failing. Finally, we capitulate, I give up. I give up on myself. I close in on myself, or I run away. Here, the violence is directed against ourselves. Yes, I hear you say, but what is the good of being aware of one's needs if it means living in perpetual frustration? And doubtless you are thinking of persons who have indeed identified their needs for a sense of community or some sort of recognition and who haphazardly spend life seeking to belong and be recognized, going from cocktail parties to meetings, from sports clubs to humanitarian activities, never satisfied. Others, who so need to find their place, their identity, or their inner security, run to and fro from workshop to therapy, never finding real respite. In the next chapter we will see how the very act of identifying our need, without it even being met, already produces relief and a surprising degree of well-being. In fact, when we are suffering, the first level of suffering is not knowing what we are suffering from. If only we could identify the inner cause of our discomfort, we would come through the confusion. Thus, if you do not feel well physically, if you have suspect stomach pains, headaches, or backaches, you get worried, what is happening? Maybe it's cancer, a tumor, if you see your doctor and he identifies the cause, pointing out that you are suffering from indigestion, that your liver is overloaded, or that you have twisted your back, the pain does not go away. However, you feel reassured in the knowledge of what is happening, and you cut through the confusion. The same is true of need. Identifying it makes it possible to get out of the confusion that only adds to our misery. A key reason for us to be interested in identifying needs is that as long as we're unaware of our needs we don't know how to meet them. We often then wait for others, parents, spouse, child, to come along and meet our needs spontaneously, guessing what would please us, whereas we ourselves find it difficult to name those needs. A key reason for us to be interested in identifying needs is that as long as we're unaware of our needs, we don't know how to meet them. Here are two examples of couples who came to me for consultations to sort out their relationship difficulties. But first, notes on examples quoted. The examples from real life quoted in this book are deliberately abridged to avoid the length and detail of storytelling. I have endeavored to maintain the essence of the interaction because the exchanges took a lot longer than what appears here. 2. The time devoted to silence and inner work cannot be conveyed very well by the text, even though contemplative disciplines constitute a basic component of the work.
the tone or the vocabulary might at times seem naive. I do this deliberately in many of my consultations in order to get to the heart of the matter, avoiding as much as possible any thinking or intellectualizing about what is truly at stake that might interfere with listening and inner awakening. In an atmosphere of openness and profound mutual respect, the simplest words and tone often have the greatest impact. I have observed that simplicity sharpens consciousness, because attention, being required only a little or not at all for intellectual understanding, is available for emotional understanding. People's names have been changed, and sometimes roles have been reversed in order to respect confidentiality. In the first example, a wife is complaining about her husband's inability to understand. He doesn't understand my needs. Could you, I suggested, tell me a need of yours that you would like him to understand? Oh, no. He's my husband after all. It's up to him to understand my needs. Are you saying that you expect him to guess your needs, whereas you yourself find it difficult to determine them? Precisely. And have you been playing this guessing game for a long time? We've been married for 30 years. You must feel exhausted. She bursts into tears, oh, I am. I'm at the end of my rope. Are you exhausted because you have a need for understanding and support on the part of your husband, and that is what you've been waiting for so long? Yes, that's exactly it. Well, I fear you may wait a long time unless you clarify your needs for yourself and then tell him. Then, after a long, tear-filled silence, she said, you're right. I'm the one who is confused. You see, in my family, we were not allowed to have needs. I know nothing about my needs and, of course, I chide him for usually being wrong, without being able to tell him what I really want. Basically, I think he's doing his best, but in the heat of the moment I seldom tell him that. And then of course he gets angry, and I sulk. It's hell. With this couple, therefore, we did lengthy work on understanding and clarifying the needs of both. People who have always expected others to take care of them without doing much for themselves find it difficult to accept responsibility for themselves, and taking that initiative can be painful. However, it's only through work on the relationship with oneself that the relationship with others may improve. In the second example, the husband is the one doing the complaining. My wife doesn't give me recognition. Are you angry because you need to hear her express recognition? Yes. Could you tell me what you'd like her to say or do to express the recognition you need? I don't know. Well, she doesn't either. So it seems to me that you're fervently expecting her to express recognition to you without you saying, in the most practical of terms, how you envision such recognition. It must be exhausting for her to sense on your part that there's a strong request for recognition, yet faced with it, she feels helpless. I suppose the more recognition you ask of her without saying specifically what that means, the more she flees. Yes, that's exactly how it is. Then I suppose you're tired of this never-ending quest. Actually, exhausted. Exhausted because you want to share with her and feel close to her? Yes. Then I suggest you tell her how you would like to receive recognition, in concrete terms, and in relation to what. With this couple, we worked not on the need but on the practical request. This man felt wounded because he was not receiving the approval and recognition he wanted for the efforts he had made for years to provide the household with financial security, despite physical and professional circumstances of a trying nature. So he got stuck in complaining to his wife, 
you fail to take the full measure of the efforts I've been making. You have no idea how hurtful that has been to me. And she, shutting herself off from each criticism, was incapable of reaching him through all the bitterness. Finally, I suggested the following. Would you like to know if your wife has taken the full measure of the efforts you made and if she appreciated your profound commitment? Yes, that's exactly what I would like to ask her. Well, I turned to his wife, you have heard that your husband would like recognition for his efforts. In more concrete terms, I would like to know if you're aware of the efforts he has made and whether or not you appreciate them. But of course I'm aware, and of course I appreciate them. I simply no longer know quite how to tell him. In the long run, I fear he can't hear me. It's true, I no longer respond, and I rush away to do something else. Do you mean that, in your turn, you would like him to be able to hear that you're not only aware of his efforts but also touched by them? But of course, most touched, even moved, but he seems to be so hurt that he can no longer recognize my appreciation. Turning to her husband, I asked, how do you feel when you hear that your wife is touched, even moved, by your efforts? Very moved, in my turn, and relieved. I'm becoming aware that I was actually obsessed with my complaining and feeling I was not receiving the recognition I was expecting, and I was no longer aware of the affirmations that in fact she gave me regularly. I myself am shut away in a cage. This awareness lightened the relationship and removed from it a weight that had, in effect, anesthetized the couple to the caring that each had for the other. This second example makes two things clear, a. a. As long as we fail to explain in concrete terms to the other party how we wish to see our need met, we might well see our request crushed under the weight of an insatiable need. It's as if we were to have the other person carry the full responsibility for this need. Faced with a threat like that, the other person goes slightly berserk and says, I cannot on my own assume responsibility for this huge need, love, recognition, listening, support, etc., so I take flight or shut myself off, in silence or sulking. This is precisely what Guy Corneau describes with these words, follow me, I flee, flee me, I follow you. 3. The husband is clearly desirous of recognition. The wife is just as desirous of escaping from the request. And the faster she takes to her heels, the more he chases after her. Of course, this works in the other direction too. For example, a wife deeply wishes for tenderness and intimacy. Her husband panics when faced with such an expectation and seeks escape in work, sports, his papers. The farther away he goes, the more pressing her request. The more pressing her request, the farther away he moves. What he fears, perhaps even on a subconscious level, is having to meet a need for love unmet since childhood. That is too much for one man on his own. Were the situation reversed, it would be too much for a woman as well. The lesson from this story, if needs aren't followed by a concrete request in an identifiable time and space, for example, need for recognition, would you agree to thank me for specific efforts I've been making for 30 years? Need for intimacy and tenderness, would you agree to take me in your arms for 10 minutes and gently rock me? It often looks to the other person like a threat. The other person wonders if he or she will have the capacity to survive such an expectation and remain themselves, maintain their identity, and not be swallowed up by the other person. It's worth remembering that we are often caught in the binary thinking trap. 
not knowing either how to listen to another's need without ceasing listening to our own or how to listen to our own need without ceasing listening to the need of another, we often terminate the relationship. We cut off the listening primarily to protect ourselves. When I perceive listening to another's need as a threat, I cut myself off from it and flee, or I take refuge in silence. When I perceive listening to another's need as a threat, I cut myself off from it and flee, or I take refuge in silence. By expressing our practical request to the other party, for example, would you agree to take me in your arms for 10 minutes and gently rock me? We make the need less threatening, I need love, tenderness, intimacy, help, because we materialize it into reality, into our day-to-day -day existence. This is no longer a virtual need, apparently insatiable and threatening. Rather, it's a concrete request, well-defined in terms of space and time. In relation to a request like that, we are able to position ourselves and adopt a stance. Be another issue the above example clarifies is this, as we are obsessed by the idea of our need not being recognized, we aren't open to observing that it is so. The wife had striven to recognize her husband's efforts. Yet he was so caught up, or bogged down, in the notion of not being understood, that he couldn't hear her. This is a common phenomenon. By dint of repeating to ourselves the thought that we aren't being understood or recognized, that we are the subject of injustice or rejection, we give ourselves a new identity, to wit, I am the one who is not understood, not recognized, I'm the one who is the subject of injustice or rejection. We get caught in the rut of this belief to such an extent that the outside world may well send us messages of warmth, understanding, and belonging, but in vain for we can't hear them or see them. We will return to this matter in Chapter 3. In these instances, it's necessary to work on fundamental needs. The questions we may be asking ourselves, among others, are as follows. Am I able to provide myself with the esteem, the recognition, the warmth, the understanding that I'm so fervently expecting others to give me? Can I begin to nurture these needs myself rather than maintain myself in a dependent position regarding the approving opinions of others? And above all, Am I able to experience my identity other than in complaints and rebellion? Am I able to feel safe and secure in ways other than leaning on something or someone, other than by justifying myself or objecting? Am I able to feel my inner security, my inner strength of and by myself, outside the domain of power and tension? Once we have identified our need, we are going to be able to make a concrete, negotiable request designed to meet it. 4. The Request or concrete and negotiable action. By formulating a request, or making a practical and negotiable proposal for action, we free ourselves from the third concrete slab that hampers us and prevents us from taking steps to meet our needs. By making a practical request, we release ourselves from the often intense expectation that another person should understand our need and accept the duty or challenge of meeting it. Such an expectation can last a long time and prove very frustrating. Making a request means we assume responsibility for the management of our need and therefore assume responsibility for helping to meet it. Too often, though, we fall into the trap of mistaking our requests for fundamental needs. The following example illustrates the distinction between a basic need, which forms an integral part of ourselves in most circumstances, and a practical request, which will vary according to circumstances. The example of Terry and Andrea. During a workshop, I raise the issue of needs, stating that, in my view, human beings basically have the same needs. 
doubtless they do not always express them in the same way, nor do they experience them in the same way at the same time. That is what lies behind marital, domestic, or school misunderstandings, the day-to-day battlefields of needs, not unlike wars waged with machine guns and missiles. To date, out of all of the behaviors I have observed, even the most frightening and the most appalling, I have been able to detect needs common to the whole of humankind. Obviously, this is the basic hypothesis of my work, and it is based mainly on experience. In no way am I claiming to put forth a universal, comprehensive truth. A participant, Terry, interrupted me and said, I completely disagree with you. My wife and I do not have the same needs, and that has been the cause of so much tension that we are on the verge of divorcing. We've come together to attend your workshop just to make sure we've done everything we can. We'll be able to say to ourselves that we've left no stone unturned, but it's without much conviction, especially when you start out by stating that basically human beings have the same needs. I suggested he come up with an actual situation where he got the impression that he did not have the same needs as his wife. This was his answer. Well, it happened a few months back. Things just exploded between us. You need to know that we both work outside the home, and we have three children. One weekend, the children had been invited to stay with their cousins. I came home on the Friday evening after work, tired and, phew, a long sigh, I really needed to go out to a restaurant with my wife. Do you think she did? Not in the least. She needed to stay at home and watch a movie. I then told her that she had no understanding at all about my needs, and she said it was exactly the same for her. We both flew into a rage, and in the end I went to bed in the children's room. Since then, we continually have the impression that we do not share the same needs. When you came home that evening, what feelings were alive in you? Phew, another sigh. I was tired. It looks like an unpleasant feeling to be experiencing at that time, and it shows that a need was not being met. Could you tell us what that need was? That's easy, a need for rest, of course. Hence the idea of going out to eat that evening. No meal to get ready, no washing to do. So your feeling of fatigue shows a need for rest, for relaxation at that time. At the same time, I observe your sighing, a reference to your tiredness. You twice gave a long sigh. My impression is that the sigh is the expression of another feeling. What lies behind that sigh? If you go down a bit into your well, what other feeling was with you then? Terry stopped for a moment to think. Well, I think that in addition to the fatigue of the week, it was Friday, and we had been on the run since Monday, there was an older tiredness. We have been running around for months, years, with work, the children, the house, and we don't see much of each other. A feeling of lassitude, being used up? Yes, lassitude, deep lassitude, and a kind of listlessness. And what unmet need did this unpleasant feeling point to? Once again Terry listened within. I believe I just said it, my wife and I don't see each other anymore. I need time to be with her, to connect. I need time for us to join with each other again and share intimacy. As Terry was expressing his needs, his wife, Andrea, sitting not very far from him in our circle, bursts into tears. It's crazy, she said. I had exactly the same need. I had gone to buy a prepared dish and a bottle of wine both of us like. I went to the video store to rent a movie we had never had the time to go see and, for once, 
the children were not at home. I was preparing for us to spend a happy little evening together as lovers, precisely to be able to get together for a few hours and share some intimacy. So what happened? What was it that occurred that led this couple, lucky enough to have the same need at the same time, to declare war on each other? Well, they mistook their requests for fundamental needs, and the needs became an obsession. Terry mistook his request to go out for a meal for a basic need, and Andrea did not listen. Andrea mistook her request to stay at home for a basic need, and Terry did not understand. Both Andrea and Terry stuck to their guns, and both were unconsciously trapped in their little cage. It wasn't so much the wife failing to listen to the husband as the husband not having listened to himself before opening his mouth. It wasn't so much the husband not understanding the wife as the wife not having taken the time to understand herself before opening her mouth. I suggested reenacting the scene. Terry and Andrea had had some practice and were aware that underlying their request, which was their present wishes, there was a basic need. If we listen to this basic need and understand it, we give ourselves the freedom to formulate a variety of requests to explore various wishes and to release ourselves from the trap into which the need-slash-request confusion can plunge us. To facilitate understanding of the example, I have again shown in parentheses the abbreviations for the components of the process, observation, O, feeling, F, need, N, request, R. The roleplay began. Darling, Terry began, this evening I'm tired. F. I just need to rest. I don't feel like cooking or anything else, N. And I would like to know if you are in agreement for us to go out for a meal, R. Honey, I'm deadbeat too. I'm happy, F. That we have the same need for rest, N. At the same time I feel sad, F. That we've both been so busy in recent times. I need to spend some quiet time with you, just the two of us, N. And I'm so afraid, F. That if we go out to dinner, will be bothered by the waiter or distracted by friends. So I prefer to stay quietly at home. Everything is already on the table for the meal. We can dine, just the two of us, and then afterward, if you like, we can watch a movie I've rented that we haven't had time to see yet, R. You're making me aware that I have the same need, to regain some lost intimacy with you, to spend the evening together, just the two of us, and that's why I suggested going out for a meal this evening. At the same time, when I hear your proposal to stay at home, I feel a bit disappointed, F, because I also need a change of scenery, to get out of the house for once when the children aren't here, N. So now that we have set out the criteria of what is at stake for us, formally that would have been called a conflict. Need for relaxation, need to get together, and have a change of scenery, what solution, what concrete action could we come up with to meet these varying needs? During that workshop, once Andrea and Terry had played out their exchange and deciphered it, they found that what would please both of them most that evening would be to go for a walk to the end of a lake in their area, taking a picnic basket with them and a little wine. In the old days when they were in love, they often went there, arm in arm. And then they got caught up by their working lives to such an extent that they forgot to even think about it. Yet this walk would have truly nurtured their need to get together, to relax, and to have a change of scenery. This example sheds light on four main points. We fall into the trap ourselves, and tend to drag the other person in too, when we don't take care to differentiate our true need from our request. By seeing what underlies our request and identifying our need, we give ourselves freedom. We note, for example, 
that we can meet our need for intimacy and getting together with our spouse or our need for rest, restaurant, walk, movie, in all sorts of different ways. We escape from the fallacy that there is only one solution. By taking care of our true need instead of haggling over our request, we together free ourselves from the trap, and we give ourselves a space to meet, a space to create. Andrea and Terry, harassed by the pace of their lives, had not taken time to get together or to be creative to make their evening truly satisfying. The solution they finally came up with, after looking at their needs together, proved much more innovative and satisfactory than any they had hastily come up with previously on their own. By taking care of our true need instead of haggling over our request, we give ourselves a space to meet, a space to create. In this spirit, it is useful to observe that we often skip to the quickly done, poorly done solution. For a long time I worked as a legal advisor to an American company where the expression quick and dirty was the common way of describing a quick solution to meet an emergency when there wasn't enough time to look for the best solution. Thus Terry, coming back tired from the office, decided on the quick and dirty solution to take his wife out for supper. Andrea, in the same way, coming back from her work completely drained, hurriedly buys a dish from the corner takeout and rents a video. Both of these initiatives of course have their value. However, it can be seen that neither he nor she really took the time to ask, deep down, how am I feeling this evening, and what would truly do me and my partner the most good? What would meet our real needs? This is one of the consequences of our education, seeking intellectually to solve things, and solve things fast. Using our intelligence, our performance capabilities, getting immediate results, moving as quickly as possible from seeing the problem to solving it without taking the time to listen to what is truly at stake. Some time ago, I was emptying our dishwasher and putting away the utensils in a kitchen drawer. As I was closing the drawer, it stuck halfway. Bang! With a swing of the hip, I tried to close it by force. But it refused to budge, and I wound up with a painful hip, a damaged drawer, and a bent fork. Quick and dirty indeed. I was bowled over. What old force to solve pattern was alive in me? I thought I had released myself quite considerably from my own violence, but I still had some way to go when it came to acceptance and listening. Observing that the drawer is stuck, pulling it out, bending over, observing what is blocking the drawer, suggesting to the wayward fork that it lie down quietly among its kin, then simply closing the drawer, thank you, fork, for having taught me to listen and accept before looking for a solution. Since that time, I have truly believed ever more deeply that violence is a habit, an old reflex we can get rid of if we really want to. I'll cover this in greater detail in the last chapter. Our misunderstandings are often mislistenings, themselves resulting from mis-expressions, ill-spokens, and unspokens. We are capable of learning to speak with sensitivity, force, and truth. Remarks Terry and Andrea as a couple were lucky enough to have the same need at the same time. This of course facilitated the negotiation of requests and the adoption of a common satisfactory solution. Having had the opportunity to clarify this misunderstanding in a way that finally pleased them, they went deeper into their training and found pleasure again in joining each other in the life they led together. To be sure, not all disputes work out like that one. I can quote the example of spouses who had gotten to the stage of throwing plates at each other before they went to a training session together. After some practice they learned to listen to each other. It was even agreed between them that in their drawing room there would be two non-violent armchairs.
when a tiff occurred in the household, they would cry, stop. Armchairs. As in a game of musical chairs where children chase each other, they placed themselves in a non-violent communication zone where the instruction was here each takes turns to speak and to listen. After a while they observed that they didn't operate at all at the same pace, that their respective needs were doubtless the same but seldom at the same time, and this made life together very difficult and, finally, unbearable. So they decided to split, to go arm in arm to see a lawyer and then the judge. They went as friends who loved and respected each other. One day after their divorce they told me they spent at least one evening a week together, and there they finally nurtured the friendship, the trust, and the transparency between them that they had always dreamed of. Such a relationship, however, had been impossible to achieve living under the same roof. It's often difficult to observe peacefully, with esteem and compassion, that we aren't in agreement. Difference and therefore disagreement are frequently perceived as a threat. We tend to be justly proud of our language and its wealth of nuances. However, verbal language represents but a tiny percentage of communication. Nonverbal language, according to the specialists, is thought to make up some 90% of our communication, while a mere 10% comprises verbal language. Being aware of that enables us to be attentive to our own body language, our tone of voice, our speed of delivery, our facial expressions, our body positions, as well as the body language of other people. To become aware of this, note the impact, the power of a single reproachful look or, on the other hand, a look of approval coming from someone close, parent, spouse, child, hierarchical superior, teacher. In secondary school, we had a Latin and French teacher we liked very much, particularly on account of his humor and volubility. When he would tell us, once a month, that he would start the first lesson in the afternoon 10 minutes late because he had a meeting, each time he told us mischievously, and when I do come, I'll be listening to hear nothing. We loved the way he used words, he stimulated our young gray matter and made us appreciate the finer points of language. Returning from his meeting, we carefully respected his instructions, out of affection and respect for him, he came in from the back of the classroom and went right up to the blackboard without a word. He looked us up and down approvingly, one hand cupped behind his ear to show he was listening and hearing not a sound, the other hand showing with thumb and index joined that he appreciated the quality of the silence we had respected. When he reached his desk he started teaching at once. We had no need for any other sign of recognition for our efforts to be silent. Although I was highly amused by each of these little rituals, I was astounded at the strength and sobriety of his presence alone, where not a word was spoken. Nor did it need to be.